G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Welcome back to the show. It's the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, stunting the growth of your houseplants and small animals with heavy metal tunes since 2021. Reckon your Sunday school education every weekend. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about creation and creation stories and Our focus has been on the ancient Near East and the stories they tell, but creation stories are still being told today. Nowadays, we often use science fiction to tell our creation stories. Allow me to tell one now. A passing comet affects all machinery on planet Earth, turning man-made machines into murderous man-killing devices. The survivors of this apocalypse theorize that aliens are using the effects of the comet like a broom to sweep the Earth clean of humanity before they begin to take over the planet. Fortunately, it just so happens that a Soviet nuclear satellite destroys the approaching alien craft and the invasion never happens. Humankind gets a second chance. Now, for anyone who's thinking they might know this story, yes, it is, in fact, the cheesy B-movie from the 80s, just like it sounds. The year was 1986, The writer slash director slash cameo star was Stephen King. And the movie was Maximum Overdrive, which featured Emilio Estevez or Coach Bombay from the Mighty Ducks and Yardley Smith, who you probably know as the voice of Lisa Simpson. It was based on a short story called Trucks. In one scene, a truck with a huge face of the Green Goblin, as in Spider-Man's Green Goblin, on the front of the truck, runs over a Bible salesman. Yep. It's that bad. What were your thoughts on it, Chris? Yeah, it really is that bad, but it's kind of in that category of it's so bad, it's good, I think. I wasn't <laughs> quite sure. Oh, wait, the trucks run out of fuel. Okay, how are they going to address this problem? Oh, maybe the, the machines <laughs> will ask the people to put fuel in them <laughs> and the people say yes. Yes. And they do it. <laughs> And it's almost like, is it trying to be bad? Um, and it's kind of, I guess, an example of when you give a writer slash director complete creative control. You know, sometimes you get uh, hits, sometimes you get misses, sometimes you get something like the Star Wars prequel films where a bit of bit of in between. Um, but it's, I guess it could be classed as a guilty pleasure, but it's certainly a nonsensical tale. Yeah, they, they definitely gave Stephen King creative control. I don't think they gave him much money, but it sort of had that Mad Max feel where, like, you know, the budget didn't stretch to any kind of effects that might substantiate the overarching uh, premise of, yeah. of the story. So, you know, we'll put that in a couple of slides at the start and the finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. Please. Because... You know, if you took those two slides out, then all you have is this green mist that floats around in the air at night time, which yeah. is ridiculously fake. And then just the little incidental bits that you catch in the background, like, you know, they're talking on the TV about disasters and, you know, whatever's yeah. going on. It's all sort of very, very deliberately placed there to, to give it a sense of setting, but it just wasn't there yeah. <laughs> in the actual... No, uh, in, in you know, there's no real script, you know, maybe a couple of paragraphs where they sort of try to develop the premise a little bit, but it didn't relate to what you could see on the screen. <laughs> no, but there seems to be a lot of uh, vehic- vehicular destruction. Yeah, I think um, Stephen King was probably influenced by Steven Spielberg uh, in that regard because he did uh, Duel. Yeah, and, and of course I mentioned Mad Max already, so there's another precedent. So yeah, there was definitely a lot of that going on, and you could see the development of uh, some of Stephen King's later ideas, like because uh, you know the Shawshank Redemption came later, and uh, you had that. There was a line in there dropped by the guy who runs the Roadhouse because he's getting. Um, you know, parolees to work for him and he's ripping yeah. them off. Yeah. And uh yeah, it gives him this this line about how uh you know their backside belongs to him. 
Right. Uh, unless they want to go back to jail sort of thing. Yeah. Um, which is a very yeah. similar sentiment uh, yeah. coming from the the, the, uh, the warden of the prison. Yeah. Yeah. Shawshank. <laughs> yeah. So Shawshank obviously uh, did a, a far better job of that. But, yeah, you can sort of, you, you can see those ideas kind of developing. <laughs> it was interesting, a bit of, bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cheesy, you know, amusing nonetheless, pretty lame. I'm trying to think of the last time that, you know, watching a uh, an electric meat carver come to life actually frightened me. Um, maybe it's... back like when Gremlins or something came out, you know, like, and, and I, <laughs> you know, put it in perspective, I was maybe, I don't know, what, 12 when I watched that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things like that might have scared me at that age. Yeah, it it almost reminds me of the um, something like a, the Simpsons would do in one of their Treehouse of Horror episodes. It's just a wild, yeah. crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that um, that weird green cloud of uh, comet dust wasn't really scaring me much. It looked so fake; it was hilarious. Yes, love the eighties. <laughs> but anyway, as cheesy as it was, uh, in in the story. And this is sort of why we're talking about this. The, the story of the film, you have this idea that some chaotic event threatens to bring about a new order and a new civilization, which is a story as old as civilization itself. In my opinion, the best thing about that film, Maximum Overdrive, was the ACDC soundtrack to the film. I'm a bit of an ACDC fan, uh, which became the album Who Made Who? I didn't realise this until recently that Who Made Who was actually a soundtrack album and it only had, I think, three tracks on it. They were not sort of rehashed from earlier material. Now, apparently ACDC was Stephen King's favourite band. And in the music video that was made for Who Made Who, which uh, does not relate to the movie, some scientists, I think they're supposed to be scientists, they look kind of like... I don't know, some mix of Babylonian gods or, you know, some sort of B-grade sci-fi aliens or something. Yep, they made me think of um, the Flash Gordon film from the uh, 1980, that kind of uh, style. Yeah, 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 <laughs> certainly that calibre. Um, yeah, these, these scientists, they... Uh, they start doing some experiment and they're cloning Angus Young and they make copies of him and just sort of start pumping him out in a production line, you know, right down to the school shorts and the scruffy hair under the English cap. And, yeah, they just kind of make him appear out of the out of the water. It's kind of – actually, that that bit where he starts to materialise on the – in in the in the water there, which sort of seems to, I'm not sure if it's actually water or an operating table or or what they got going on there, but it was very much like uh, Wolverine getting experimented on and you know getting his adamantium skeleton. Yeah, you'll have to correct me if I didn't quite get that one. Uh, well, I described. didn't notice I didn't notice that connection, but uh, yeah, I can see how you got from point A to point B there, ACDC to Wolverine. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're both kind of Australian, at least in the, in the filmic sense. Yeah. They're played by yeah. Hugh Jackman, but obviously Wolverine is Canadian in the comics. Anyway. Yeah. Look, oh, yeah. I, I could talk about this stuff for him. ages. Yeah. Oh, that's what I like. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's part of your – that's one small facet of your broad appeal, Chris. So <laughs> <laughs> between the film and its soundtrack, we get these two distinct creation motifs, the story of – cosmic chaos bringing an end to civilization so that a new order can begin and the production of a population made to represent the original being and to do what he does some ancient examples of this would include the kuthian legend of naramsin where strange monstrous invaders that can't be killed advance across a card and wipe out civilization to make a new beginning also there's uh, the enuma elish which we've talked about before where a god is killed so that humans can be mass-produced from his blood, and then the humans are made to do the work of the gods. Now, speaking of the Enuma Elish, I've got a little excerpt here, which I'm going to read from Tablet 6. 
And this one gives you some detail, which we didn't cover last time I was reading from Enuma Elish, centred around the origin of man. Yeah, I've got about uh, the first 36 lines of that to read. When Marduk heard the gods' speech, he conceived a desire to accomplish clever things. He opened his mouth, addressing ear. He counsels that which he had pondered in his heart. I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be Man. I will create Lulu Man, on whom the toil of the gods will be laid, that they may rest. I will skillfully alter the organization of the gods. Though they are honored as one, they shall be divided into two. Ea answered as he addressed a word to him, expressing his comments on the resting of the gods. Let one brother of theirs be given up. Let him perish that people may be fashioned. Let the great gods assemble, and let the guilty one be given up that they may be confirmed. Marduk assembled the great gods, using gracious direction as he gave his order. As he spoke, the gods heeded him. The king addressed a word to the Anunnaki. Your former oath was true indeed. Now also tell me the solemn truth. Who is the one who instigated warfare? Who made Tiamat rebel and set battle in motion? Let him who instigated warfare be given up, that I may lay his punishment on him. But you sit and rest. The Ajiji, the great gods, answered him. That is, Lugal Dimarankia, the counsellor of the gods, the lord. Kingu is the one who instigated warfare, who made Tiamat rebel and set battle in motion. They bound him holding him before ear. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his blood vessels. From his blood, ear created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. After the wise ear had created mankind, he imposed the service of the gods upon them. And this is the end of the quote. So, in the Babylonian story, mankind in the presence of a divine assembly is made from the blood of a god, in particular, a crafty and deceitful god who had instigated the creation battle between Tiamat and Maduk. The other gods use him to make people from his blood, from his essence, and they use their new toys to do their work for them. Note that the decision is made by Maduk, the leader of the pantheon, but several other gods participate in the process that leads to the creation of man. Yes, and there seems to be some vague similarities there to what we find in scripture but can we really say anything about the bible through the lens of the ancient near east without um, corrupting a high view of scripture well we have to be very careful about it but yes we can and the safeguard there is always the consensus of scripture not just a proof text or two that's why when i give you any definition of biblical terms i'm careful to give you one that fits for all of the biblical uses I'm not selective with the data, and unfortunately these days, even top scholars can be found picking and choosing. Note that according to the Enuma Elish, mankind is made from the blood of an evil god, whereas in the Bible, man is formed by the hand of the righteous creator. Not only that, but the biblical text plays against the Babylonian story by using the motif of blood that was found in the Enuma Elish in the very name of Adam. The Hebrew word for blood is dam, and this word forms the root from which Adam is constructed. So the biblical author has taken a jab at the Babylonians by repurposing the concept. Instead of creating man from the sin and death of fallen divine beings, God creates according to his own image and likeness, the author and sustainer of life, the righteous and just God, the creator of heaven and earth. Anyway, let's talk more about the best creation story of all, which is, of course, in the Hebrew Bible. And now we're up to verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis. After more than a dozen episodes, we're finally preparing to talk about the creation of man. So here's our text. This is Genesis 1, 26 to 27 from the NIV. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's a lot to unpack here, so we're going to move slowly. The first thing to talk about is God's language here. Up until this point, usually when God has said the word let, we've looked at that as an indication of intent to allow a natural process to proceed as it was already, but with a new sense of purpose and therefore function applied where no such purpose or function existed before. 
The question is, do we see this instance of that same language as conforming to the same pattern? Or do we notice that God is now including himself as the personal subject of the verb and allow that to change how we interpret that verb? In other words, when God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, we read that as God verbally directing the land to produce animals. God didn't make animals per se, the land did. God acted indirectly. But on the other hand, earlier when God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky, in that instance, God created them. The sea and the sky did not. So is God creating directly or indirectly? I've already hinted at this. The clue is found in verse 27. So God created. And there we have our second occurrence of the verb form, wa-yibra, which we saw earlier with the fish and birds. So it only happens twice. It only happens with creatures that have the attributes of sentience, that is because the birds and fish represent spiritual beings in this text. And it only happens by the direct action of God. So... God is here creating man, having previously created the other spirits in the same way. That is to say they are not created by other means like the animals were, but were specially crafted, created personally by the word of the Father. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, we, we have to ask in what sense was man created? And we might even extend that question back to the scriptural birds and fish here as well. Did we have a creation that was simply function oriented or was there a material element involved? Now, it's been a while since we sort of floated that idea of material origins, but that's a legitimate question since the text of Genesis 1 doesn't tell us what sentient beings were made from or what they were made out of. You only need to read the verse we're studying to identify that its primary concern is function. Our job as humans is spelled out clearly. Let's look at that again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So once again, we're confronted with the ambiguity of the English word make here, which on face value would have us making assumptions about material construction. And once again, we're forced to acknowledge that the Hebrew term employed here, which is asa, does not necessarily refer to making. As I said on a previous episode, and for those who came in late, that term asa is usually meant to refer to doing, as in doing a triathlon, doing a crossword puzzle, doing yourself a mischief, doing a demolition job, doing the Macarena, or doing nothing. It's the most generic of verbs. So arriving at the conclusion that this has to be concerned with material origins or some kind of physical manufacturing has to come from something substantive, pardon the pun, and it doesn't. The question of the material origin of man remains unanswered in the text. So instead of reading Genesis 2 backward into this text, which wouldn't do us any good anyway, but we'll get to that later, we need to work with what we already have. It's a special creation by God personally. The creation is defined as the assignment of function and purpose. And the creation is somehow associated with a particular something shared with the spirits represented in the text by the fish and birds. Okay, but let's hang on a minute and backtrack. I feel like he skipped over an important detail there. And what we all want to know is, what do you mean, us? Yeah, well spotted. Yeah, that's the plural language right there, isn't it? And it's matched with the plural our coming up twice later in the sentence. We find plurals in other places too. Elohim is sometimes a plural noun, as we talked about before. Humans are also talked about here in plural terms. Let them rule, male and female. He created them. But then we also have singular references to God. Elohim might be sometimes read as plural. The associated verbs make it clear that the intended form is singular. God said, God created in his image. He created. These are all singular. In Hebrew, you have um, verb forms that have the quality of being singular or plural. So you've got God said, that's actually singular. Where it says Elohim said, you, you, you actually can't confuse that with lots of gods said. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, a peculiar uh, feature of Hebrew there. So yeah, Elohim in this text is not to be read as plural and we know because the verbs are singular. 
Even though we haven't yet gotten far enough to figure out what's going on here, we can immediately rule out the idea that Elohim in this text is plural. This can only be the one God of Israel. This isn't polytheism. This isn't a pantheon. Elohim is one. Be that as it may, we still have to deal with those plurals. So we have options. We've taken a multiplicity of gods called Elohim off the table already. So could this be a textual error? Could this be the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? What about other gods? Could this be a reference to the divine council? Is God talking to the heavens and the earth? Is he talking to himself or thinking out loud? Is it another kind of plural indicating divine fullness or you know perfection or something like that? So we actually have a lot of possibilities, really, even when we start by ruling out a polytheistic uh, interpretation. Absolutely. Is it a textual error? Well, we have a variety of manuscripts from different traditions, and while you may find variations on other points in the text, and later we'll talk about one of those, there are no variations between manuscripts on the use of singular or plural terms. So we can safely rule out the idea that the mixed use of terms was a mistake. We also find that similar mixture occurs elsewhere in Scripture, so there's some kind of phenomena here that we need to identify and account for. We can't just write it off as an error. So what about the Trinity? Is that what we're seeing here? Now, as Christians, we might be able to conceive of the idea, but this text wasn't written to Christians. God obviously intended it to be understood by Christians at a later date, but if a text, any text, is going to be preserved at all, it needs to make sense to the audience that received the text originally, its first audience. And that first audience is Jewish. Uh, we could possibly go as far as a binatarian view, since both Elohim and the spirit of Elohim have been mentioned previously in this text. But the Trinitarian idea wasn't established until late in the Second Temple period with the advent of Christ before falling out of favor with Jews in the early Christian period. So we're in a situation where we need the first audience to know something they don't know yet. It, it doesn't work like that, folks. If it doesn't make sense to the first audience, then either the author was really bad at his job, but they kept his heretical text anyway, or it isn't what he meant in the first place, and the problem is our hermeneutic rather than the author's communication. This isn't the Trinity, because it predates Trinitarian tradition by hundreds of years, and just because we affirm a Trinity as Christians... And Trinity is real and true. It doesn't mean we can stick that in any place we think it fits. So what about the divine council? Could the creation of man have been undertaken by several lesser Elohim under the authority and direction of God? Well, we can rule that one out by paying attention to those singular verb forms. The text says that God created. Nobody else is given the credit for doing anything in this text. All of the creation work is done by God, singular. Nobody else created mankind. Now, maybe God isn't talking to other intelligent beings. Well, quite frankly, if God is talking to the heavens and the earth, he might as well be talking to the wall. That suggestion has absolutely zero merit or explanatory power to me. Is he thinking out loud? Uh, okay, well, does God need to use plural language to think out loud? People don't do that. Um, why would God do that? It's it's illogical. And again, it solves no problems. So what about this royal we, the plural of majesty, like when the Queen of England uses we? Well, if it is, then I'm going to expect to see it elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not going to happen because, well, it never happens. This phenomenon is not found anywhere in the whole Bible. That one's out, and the same goes for plurality as an expression of divine perfection or fullness. Because again, if it is, I want to see it used that way elsewhere in Scripture, and it just isn't there. What are we left with? Well, I want to propose another option, and that is a collaborative plural. Suppose I'm at the bar with friends, and it's my shout, and I say, let's get a drink, and then I buy drinks for everyone. My friends might talk about that later and say they got drinks last night, but they didn't buy the round. I did. We all had drinks together, even though it was my idea and my action, and I placed the order and I paid. I said, let's get a drink, and that's what happened, even though I did all of it. We all got drinks. So this is something we shared, and the collective language isn't out of place. It's how we talk amongst the group. But this language doesn't intend to give credit to everyone who was there at the bar. There's only one person who acted. 
There's only one person who spoke. There's only one person who paid. The others participated somehow. How did they participate? They agreed to my proposal. They picked out what drink they wanted. They enjoyed a drink with me. None of that makes them responsible for organising that round of drinks. They are participants, not protagonists. Another example, suppose I decide to go skydiving. I invite my mates to come and watch. I say, let's go skydiving, but I'm the only one jumping out of the plane. We all went, but I'm the only one doing it. Everyone participates by being there. Nobody does it but me. So you could come skydiving with me. You could be in the plane, but if you don't jump out, then you're not doing it. Getting back to the divine council idea, perhaps we can see the gods as participants in that sense. God himself, our capital E Elohim, is the protagonist. He's the one who has the idea. He shares the idea, then he does the work. The other gods are with him as he does it. But they aren't doing creation, and they don't get the credit for it. This is all God, all the time, and he's sharing this special moment with his divine family. Humans were created on earth in the presence of a divine family and made to be a part of it. This is going to pay off for us when we get to Genesis 3, and we'll again find the us language in the fall of man story. Okay, so we talked a bit about the divine council and how to understand Elohim way back in episode four, for anyone who wants to listen to more on that. But what I really want to know is this image of God stuff. What's this image of God stuff? What's that all about? Okay, so this gets complex real fast. I'm not going to spend heaps of time on alternative views here. We have two technical terms here. They're not particularly diverse in terms of semantic range, but they're not exactly straightforward either. Basically, the word for image here is tselem, and it's the same word that's used for statues, magical items, and idols for religious purposes. This means we're going to have to get familiar with exactly what an image or idol is, what it isn't, and what it does. This is going to help us understand something about what mankind, or Adam in Hebrew, is and what we're supposed to be, and by extension what being means functionally in terms of doing. You can't have a human being who isn't a human doing. So you said idols. Aren't, they, aren't idols like gods or something? That's how we, we tend to think of them, but we're not gods. So how does that work? Yeah, okay, so obviously ancient people believed in gods, right? And it's the same today, but in the ancient world, it was more common to have people direct their worship toward the god in question by focusing it on a particular point. Ancient people knew that the gods were unseen and potentially could be anywhere, so in order to localize the god and get him to act favorably in their lives, they would make a home for him. They would make him a body to inhabit. And uh, to demonstrate that a little bit, I'm going to read... Uh, from Isaiah chapter 44 and verses 6 to 20, and this is from the NIV. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Before I go on, I just want to point out this language here demonstrates incomparability rather than denying the existence of other deities, which is why God can say, I am the first and I am the last, apart from me there is no God, and then follows with, who then is like me? Because one of those is redundant if the other is taken strictly literally out of its context. So working these things together, you can understand that this is Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, talking about his uniqueness and superiority and his inability to be compared with other gods because he's so superior to them. And it doesn't deny that the other gods, these lesser Elohim, exist and are active in the world. Anyway, I'm going to keep reading. We're at verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. 
The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And that's the end of the reading. So as we read just now, idols are basically little figurines made to resemble what the power being represented was thought to look like and perhaps represent the attributes of that power. Sometimes whittled from wood, other times cut from stone, or if you were loaded, you made them from precious metals. The idols provided a tangible locality for the power. And 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now that's an interesting one in the context of the creation of man and this idea that a clay jar is something fragile and brittle. It's made from the dust and it's meant to contain something in particular, something valuable. Through a ritual known as mouth opening, a priest could imbue the idol with a manifestation of the presence of a god by breathing spirit into it. And then the idol was said to be the god. Think of it as a kind of proxy. It's not like someone makes a little statue of Baal and suddenly Baal is sucked away from wherever he was and stuffed into this image on grandma's mantelpiece and he can't leave. The image is a focal point of manifestation, but not the entirety of the energy of the god. That's how a god can exist independently and in multiple idols and also embodied in a priest or king all at once. Now, it was clearly understood that the god himself was not the idol. Likewise, the idol, in a material sense, did not become deity. But as long as that idol had the function of representation of the god, it became a focal point through which the god acted in power on a local level, say in a temple or in your house. And that's how an idol can be said to be the body of a god, by providing a localized point through which an immaterial power is enabled to act toward its environment. Being is doing. The idol channels and directs the energies of the power, and as such, it is the conduit through which the power acts. Doing is being. Functionally, an idol is a god, even though materially it isn't, and could never be truly divine. An image, then, is a vessel designed to embody some kind of power. Even though it may be physically solid, functionally speaking, it is empty until it receives the impartation of the energy of the thing. At that point, it transitions from functionally worthless to being the thing. So, when the Philistines returned the stolen Ark of the Covenant in order to stop the plagues God had inflicted on them as punishment, the Philistines had images made of the mice and the tumours that they had suffered from. They actually made gold mice to image the real mice. And the tumours? Well, technically we're getting a lovely gloss from the translator in that story because the actual term is more like hemorrhoids. It's not a tumour. And they made faithful replicas of that out of gold and put them with the mice to go back to Israel with the Ark of the Covenant. Imagine the artist. Right, so uh, if we can just have the mouse posing here just like that so I can make an exact replica. And now for the butt model. Uh, but that's not even the best part. 
Let me quote the ESV here. First uh, Samuel chapter six, verses four and five. And, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Uh, you could read that as a requirement that each of the five Philistine kings had to get a model made of his own ass. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, yeah, these images of the mice and the tumors were intended to focus the energy of those curses into them and send it away by appeasing God with the return of the ark. The Philistines were hoping that the plagues would stop if they used a kind of sympathetic magic to channel them away. Interesting. So the images take a certain form, and that form is designed to visually represent that power. Yeah, and that's what the term likeness means in this context. But don't be confused. The deity doesn't look like an idol. The idol is representative of the deity. There's a huge difference. Now, First John chapter 3 and verse 2 from the NIV says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So you see that perspective there, rather than say when Christ appears, he will be like us. Earlier it says what we will be has not yet been made known. So we can't look at ourselves and say, well, God must look like us. Uh, and there's another use of the technical term for image. Sometimes it's used to convey the idea of being empty, hollow, or unsubstantial. I, read, I mentioned that uh, verse about uh, jars of clay earlier. I'm trying not to break into song. Uh, you, you'll find it used to describe a phantom or a shadow or a dream. It's counterintuitive for a materialistic worldview, but thinking like an ancient person, you realize that just as a shadow without a body is nothing, so an idol without breath or spirit is nothing. So the fact that Tselem gets used of a material object in one instance and an immaterial thing in another is irrelevant. The material counterpart to a shadow is just as important as the spiritual aspect of an idol, both uh, what make the thing substantive from a functional perspective? Interesting. So if an empty idol is nothing and the shadow of something is nothing, do idols even cast shadows then? Uh, I don't know. Do androids stream of electric sheep? I, I don't know. But <laughs> if you ask me, they are darkness. So I don't know. Is that antimatter or something? I don't, I don't do science, just Bible. So, yeah, anyway, all, all of that background on the image and likeness terminology is necessary if we're going to understand ourselves as human beings. Our, our purpose and intended function is to be God's representatives, not just people who talk about God, people who be God's body, people who act according to who God is and what he's like, people who do what God's word says and rely on his power to do it. We were always meant to have the spirit of God within us. And without him, we're empty and devoid of the power to act according to the purpose we were made for. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now I bring that verse up because the theology around God's name is integral to this discussion. If we live according to God's word, then what we do can be said to be done in his name. That's what the fourth commandment is really about. Bearing God's name isn't saying it right or spelling it a certain way. It's representing God to the world in how you live and that's absolutely essential because if you're going to rule over all life on earth and do it well you need to be acting in line with god's word in keeping with his character and empowered by his spirit and that is one reason why matthew opens the new testament by calling adam the son of god but your life needs to align with god's word in order to be able to deal with that level of responsibility because ruling the world isn't just being the guy with the title to have dominion means to take on the full weight of the burden of care for god's good world you don't get to do whatever. Your job is to keep on doing what God started. You're a part of God's body. This is day six of eternity. 
So about that dominion then, we talked about the fish and the birds before and how this text uses them to reveal truth about spirit beings. Does that mean we can tell angels and demons what to do? Are we in charge of the gods? No. Uh, let's, let's just go over the text again. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures of the earth that move along the ground. Here, the fish are not great sea creatures now, like we saw back in verse 21. Instead of the taninim, we simply have the generic term dark, which refers to ordinary fish. The cosmic waters are replaced by the sea. Instead of the winged birds that represent those liminal creatures of the air we know as demons, we just have ordinary birds but isn't that a bit inconsistent because the word for birds there doesn't change between verses 21 and 26 so how can we change the meaning oh that's a great question chris and we really need to address it because we want to show consistent thinking in our interpretation first i should say that for anyone who's confused as to why we're talking about demons here in genesis 1 they really need to go back and listen to the earlier episodes where we talked about what the birds and the fish are and there we explained how the categories for demons in the Old Testament period didn't necessarily align with the same categories in the Second Temple period, which shaped the New Testament paradigm. The birds in verse 26 are no longer described using the technical term kanaf, which has a double meaning. This word can mean wings or feathers, with emphasis on the feathers because they're at the extremities. This concept of being on the outer edge, the extremities or the fringe, is a concept used to describe creatures that live in lonely, empty spaces on the edge of civilization. This is where we find demons. Okay, so we're getting into chaos language now. This connotation of the inhabitants of liminal spaces is not found in the usage of birds in verse 26, which indicates that the birds are common birds and not intended to represent spiritual entities. We're beginning to see now some of the mastery of the author of Genesis 1 as he manages to use the same imagery to describe both the transcendent and the natural, and the language remains consistent while the meaning can be identified distinctly for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. And following that, we have the land animals. For those who came in late, the animals are grouped according to their usefulness in categories that correlate inversely with their tendency toward chaos. First, we have the livestock, which man puts to use for everyday purposes. Then we have the wild beasts, which inhabit the wastelands and serve as a limiting factor against civilization. And finally, we have the creeping things, the divine functionaries that God uses to keep the mechanisms of the world working. They're of no use to humans, but God uses them to accomplish his purposes. And in that itself, that's an indicator that the kind of dominion being spoken of in this passage is not forced subservience or being put to some kind of labor. Mankind does not have authority to govern or dictate or rule over beetles and frogs and mosquitoes and hornets and all those kind of things that God alone has a use for. Our dominion is a duty of care. Now, some listeners might be scratching their heads because I was reading along and in my translation, instead of wild beast, it says all the earth, as if to imply that mankind has dominion over the, the land, the land itself. So what's up with that? Mm, there's a textual issue here, so I want to show why I read it in line with the NIV here as opposed to some other versions. Throughout the Torah, God reminds Israel that the land belongs to him and his people are given stewardship over it. Israel are reminded constantly that if they disobey God and violate his covenant, the land would vomit them out. And it can do that because the land belongs to God. As I said earlier in a previous episode, creation itself upholds the word of God because God's truth and our reality are one and the same. God's will is enacted by the land. Let's not forget that the rationale behind the exile, which once again is the backdrop to this entire narrative, was atonement for Israel's neglect of the Sabbath of the land. Where for 490 years, Israel failed to keep the Sabbath and did not give the land its rest. The land does not serve us. Our obedience to God serves the land. Remember that in the ancient world, the gods had territorial dominion over their land, and the land was considered to be sacred to that god, which is why when Naaman the Syrian left Israel after his healing, he asked if he could bring some soil from Israel back to his home in Syria so that he could remain in the presence of Yahweh on holy ground in a different country, a different Eretz, a different earth. As I mentioned a moment ago, some manuscripts differ on the wording regarding the wild beasts or the earth, 
it should be clear from the use of the verbal patterns found in the text that this is intended to reflect the earlier mention of the animals in their distinct categories. So I believe that the best reading of the text has wild beasts rather than the earth here because it conforms to the pattern of writing that was established earlier. Inserting the earth in between two categories of animals doesn't make sense. And then, of course, we have the issue of God's ownership of the land, as we just talked about, which is made clear in a consistent reading of the Torah. Interestingly, the only source I could find that actually preserves the wild animals rather than the earth was the Syriac text of Genesis. Both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text have the earth. God always finds a way to preserve his word. So, yeah, I think that the Syriac does that here. So mankind is permitted to perform his function by taking responsibility for all living creatures in what we would call the natural realm. Note that man has no dominion over the lesser spirits, the luminaries, or God himself. If the angels are indeed, as the author of Hebrews affirms, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, then they do so at God's command, not at our pleasure. And just because I elected to go with the Syriac reading of the passage where it doesn't say that man has a responsibility to the earth, that does not excuse us from the task of ensuring that all living things have a suitable environment in which to live, whether it be the land, the water or the air. Caring for the environment is implied because functionally speaking, you haven't taken care of the animals if you haven't ensured their food, shelter and safety. Of course, I've heard people say in the past that the environment doesn't matter because the Bible says that the earth is going to pass away anyway. Let me just point out that when God told Noah that the end of all flesh was before him, and God did not say that mankind would be spared through him, Noah continued to care for the animals. And yet God retains the sole authority to do with the earth as he pleases, and he did not reveal his plan even to Noah that his plan was to save all by destroying the earth. You might argue that it was just a flood, not a total destruction, especially if you hold to a local flood. But when we read the biblical authors, we find that in their own words, it was considered the end of the world that then was, as evidenced by these excerpts from Second Peter. In chapter 2, verse 5, from the ESV, If he, that is God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And in chapter 3, verse 6, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The world perished. And yet we still exist here on the same planet. It's also a common objection that the language of having dominion or subduing the creation is more forceful more harsh and more authoritative than my choice of terms such as care and responsibility. Well, if you need those terms in the text, you can have them, but you're going to have to be consistent with how you use them. This is where a lot of people fail. You're going to have to read the Hebrew term radar, which is translated usually as rule or dominion, the same way that it's used in Leviticus 25 and 26, Numbers 24, 1 Kings 5 and 9, 2 Chronicles 8, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 29 and 34, Psalm 68, 72 and 110, and Nehemiah 9. And in every case, it's a position of authority, usually kingship, in which the one in charge has a mandate to rule with responsibility and compassion. As it says in Leviticus 25, 43, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. This is biblical dominion. It's not tyranny. This is an instruction coming from God. So it's got to be consistent with God's character. You don't get to model your treatment of the earth after Sargon the Great or Ramesses II or Gilgamesh. You can't even appeal to Saul, David or Solomon because you're not made in their image. Genesis 1 features the only use of the term radar that does not have a human object. That should tell us something important. We are to treat the animals of all kinds as we would treat ourselves in the sense that you're not allowed to be cruel to them. You are not allowed to neglect them. You are not allowed to misuse or mistreat them. Now, I don't know if any of you out there listen to the Bible's literature podcast like I do, but uh, if, if you do, you, you know I was channeling Dr. Richard Benton. And if I had a dollar for every time he said, you are not allowed. I love that, that show. It gets quite repetitive, though. Our job is to care for the living things and to take responsibility for them. 
in the ancient world, that was the king's job. Sure, he's not doing it directly. Like You're not going to see the king feeding lambs and watering the camels, but his job is to manage the earth, the whole land. You have to look after the land, and just because the text isn't explicit, that doesn't give you wiggle room. See how Peter said that the old world passed away, and yet it's the same planet we're standing on today. I realise for my Northern Hemisphere listeners, you guys are lucky you get to stand on the top while we're hanging on from underneath down here in Oz, but the point is that the planet didn't dissolve away in the deluge. The world passed away as any ancient order passed away by a cataclysmic event of chaos that brought about a new, fresh dominion under a new king. It wasn't a green miasma in the sky heralding the imminent alien invasion, like a cheap uh, B-grade movie. So don't be surprised to learn that this is the picture of what happens in Revelation when the heavens and the earth once again pass away, and this time by fire. This is not going to be a new planet. It's going to be a new dominion. It's going to be the rule and reign of Christ the King. So please remember that our job is to prepare the world for his coming, not to waste it. Let's set about the business of caring for the earth and everything in it so that we can be found doing so when he comes. Amen to that. Well, we'd better wrap it up there. What have we got next week? Next week, we're going to conclude our study of day six and finish chapter one of Genesis. It won't be the end of our series yet, though. We have a few more episodes, including, of course, day seven. There's another guest interview coming up as well and a great season finale that'll be a lot of fun. But next week specifically will be the end of chapter one. It's time for a deeper dive beyond the pages of your most excellent book, Answers to Giant Questions. What have you got for us, Tim? Oh, I love these segments because they give me a chance to get into stuff that I just didn't have room for in the book or things that were just a little too far off topic to be included. Creepy crawlies. Why do creepy crawly critters make our skin crawl? Could it be perhaps a reflection of the ancient belief that some insects were associated with ancient supernatural forces of terror? Or are we perhaps aware that plagues of tiny creatures may be an omen of judgment against us like the plagues of Egypt? We we talked last week about the creation of the land animals and part of that discussion was about the creeping things or swarming things being thought of as divine functionaries, agents of the gods. And even in this week's study, we touched on the plague of mice that ravaged the Philistines. By the way, the Philistine god Dagon was a grain god who was supposed to bring and protect good grain crops. So if you want to stick one up, Dagon, you sent mice. Uh, so you've been uh, hinting for a while now, previous episodes, about your love for hornets. So why don't you talk a little bit more about the wonderful world of hornets? Yeah, well, this is cool. You know, insects and other creeping, swarming things were considered sacred in ancient times, and they were often connected to spiritual beings. And one example of this is the hornets of the Bible. You don't hear much said about this ever. Another example from the Bible is the locust. You can read more about locusts and their connection to the Nephilim in Answers to Giant Questions. But for now, we're going to focus on the hornets. Now, I've already said that the swarming things on day five in the waters and the sky represented spirits. And then I mentioned that the animals on day six were not supernatural beings. We're now talking about swarming insects. So what's the deal here? Are these natural or supernatural phenomena? Are we talking about real hornets or demons or demon-possessed hornets or... Well, what, you release the dogs or the bees or the dogs with bees in their mouths and when they bark, they shoot bees at you? Sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their head. Why don't we have both? It's a Voltron moment. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Uh, so, yeah, if, if this is all a bit confusing, and I don't mean the stream of childhood pop culture references, uh, <laughs> if you're wondering how we get demons and hornets connected in the Bible, well, you can get this in detail in answers to giant questions. It, it's a bit too involved to get into here. Reading from Exodus 23, 27 to 28, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Two key words here in the passage, hornet, or tzirah, and terror, or emar. Emar means terror, and it is the root behind the name emim. So that's the name of a giant clan. The These giants called emim are being described as terrors or terrible ones. So we find those early in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Uh, Tsira is the route from which we get Zora, a town in Dan's tribal allotment, usually paired with Eshtael. Zora means hornets and Eshtael means divination. Divination is done by means of contact with evil spirits. The literary connection made by frequent coupling of these names is telling. We're meant to understand that the hornets are representative of these spirits. This passage from Exodus 23 that we just read is the first of three passages that mention these hornets. They appear in Deuteronomy and Joshua as well. But here's the interesting part. The hornets are mentioned three times, and every time they appear in a speech given about how God will drive out or did drive out Israel's enemies. But the hornets never appear in the written records of the actual battles in which they were said to have taken part. So they're talked about by God, by Moses, and by Joshua, but they don't turn up in the historical record. When we read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, which detail the events of the battle between Israel and the giants, the battles are purely military action, swift and decisive battle. The hornets never appear in the narrative record. They don't get described. We don't know what they look like. They're absent from the story, despite being present in the speeches about the story. But the question must be asked, how did Israel defeat forces that were undoubtedly superior in every way? Now, the Amorites had access to superior metals and technology. They had chariots, they had archers, they had superior numbers, and they had armies of warriors who were giants, by the way, not a mixed rabble of former slaves. So there has to be something that God did to help the Israelites win. I'm suggesting that if we understand this concept of the hornets, we're going to discover the key to their victory. So to quote briefly from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. What exactly does the word hornet mean in the text? The Hebrew form is tzirah which is defined as we find it in English simply as hornet. However, the etymology of the Hebrew term leads us back to its root, tsara, which is, indica- which is indicative of a piercing wound or a skin disease, usually leprosy. From this, we understand that the hornet is defined by its ability to afflict the skin with its painful sting. There's nothing new here, but there is another way to understand this, and through the eyes of an ancient person, we can glean much more. The hornet brings fear, pain, and torment, and the symptoms of its sting mimic those of disease. Fever, pain, swelling, delirium, and even death. Hence the hornet is representative of both plague and pestilence. The piercing stings of the hornets are thought of as fiery darts or poisoned arrows sent by an enemy. Now, reading Habakkuk chapter 3 and verses 3 to 5 in the ESV. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. That's the end of the quote. So now we have these creatures that we understand to be divine functionaries associated with plague and pestilence, and Habakkuk refers to them as named deities in a kind of divine entourage accompanying the embodied pre-incarnate Yahweh as he marched ahead of Israel at the Exodus. The angel of the Lord isn't Jesus, but he is God in a physical manifestation. And as is common in ancient Near Eastern literature, and Habakkuk's prophecy is ancient Near Eastern literature, the Most High God is flanked by lesser gods that assist in the journey. Turns out that plague and pestilence, or Reshef and Deber, respectively, are gods known in the ancient Near East, particularly in the region of Moab where these battles took place and in Greater Canaan. Now, Israel wasn't the only nation that God allotted land to. The Moabites had been given their land when they destroyed the Emim, a giant clan indigenous to that region following the flood. And as we learned from First Enoch, the spirits of the dead giants don't go away when their host dies. By carefully picking through the scriptures, we're able to find that these hornets may have actually been the spirits of the dead Emim giants killed by the Moabites. Emim literally means terrors, and Reshef is described in the book of Job using one of his titles, which is archaeologically attested in Canaan. His title is the King of Terrors. God used these unclean spirits led by Reshef, King of Terrors, to flush out and destroy the Rephaim tribes in front of the Israelite advance toward the Promised Land. So that briefly covers the hornets, and as I say, there's a lot more to that which I cover in my book, but there are some things I didn't mention. Does that mean the Bible isn't the only place we find little creatures cooperating with the supernatural? Yeah, it's everywhere once you start looking. 
the second century AD novel, uh, Babylonica, which was written by a Greek author, uh, Iamblichus, I think it's pronounced. Um, that book was summarized by Photius. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy uh, written by Iamblichus. Uh, Photius did a sort of a, a recap of the original story and shortened it somewhat, like a uh, you know the Reader's Digest version. And we had that up until I think the I think it was the early 17th century, and then it was destroyed by fire. So we only have records of the summary of the story, <laughs> but the story is about these. Uh, two individuals, Rodanus and Sinonus, two lovers who were fleeing from King Garmus of Babylon. And he was after Sinonus, who was the uh, the love interest in the story. He wanted uh, Sinonus to be part of his harem, and uh, Rodanus wasn't having none of that. So while they were on the run from the king, they, they encounter a satyr, like a, a goat demon, uh, you actually find those in scripture if you look hard enough. Uh, who, he, he makes them hide in a cave. And when the king's forces, led by these two eunuchs, uh, when they find the lovers in the cave, a swarm of bees attack the army and confound them. So there's an interesting connection there between these spiritual forces, you know, the uh, the goat demon there, and the swarm of bees, which seems to almost providentially just be there ready to act and to uh, to protect these these two lovers. Now uh, another story this this doesn't really fit the mold but it was it was so interesting I had to share it. I, I was actually uh, researching bees and I found a story about giants. Uh, apparently indigenous Australian folklore tells of a race of giants who brought knowledge to the indigenous people such as how to find honey, uh, by placing a tracking device on the bees. Now, uh, that's, that might sound a bit crazy, a bit uh, sci-fi, but it's really as simple as uh, getting some gum or sap out of a tree and sticking a leaf onto a bee, and then you just watch the bee slowly making its way home, and uh, that's how you find the honey. Uh, for more modern examples of the divine agency of small creatures, we can look at recent films such as The Green Mile, since we're talking about Stephen King films today, where the, uh, the flies that come buzzing out of John Cotton's mouth dispel the sickness and evil that he absorbed from the suffering person. Or uh, most recently in the new Disney movie Jungle Cruise, which I watched the other day, where cursed Spanish conquistadors are magically reanimated after death by elements of the jungle itself, including snakes and bees. And there are many others, like the rats in the new Suicide Squad reboot. Rats are the lowliest and most despised of all creatures. If they have purpose, so do we all. I thought that was a great little quote there at the end from the rat catcher. So in keeping with that message and thinking about how we too have divine purpose, perhaps this brings new meaning to a familiar Bible verse. Maybe we innately know that if these despised, insignificant creatures are insects to us, Perhaps we are the insects to something else. I'm, I'm reminded of Numbers 13 and verse 33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so at the conquest, Israel swept across the land, devastating it, renewing it, bringing about the purpose of the Most High God, like tiny insects overturning the soil. They came to establish the right rule of God in the land, like the flood of Noah's day, like the creation of Adam and his commission to multiply over the earth and rule over it. A defeat of chaos that Christ now performs in the world through us as we become instruments of divine will and part of his body. Well, that's a wrap for this week. What is coming up next time, Tim? Well, now that we've introduced mankind into our study, it's time to get to know him, her, uh, them. So, yeah, we'll try to work out what the story is with the different uses of the word Adam. Sounds interesting. Looking forward to it, as always. Yeah, we'll wrap up uh, Chapter 1. Finally uh, finish Day 6. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless.